So I'm going to talk about how um, there's ESG fraud out there. And I'll specifically refer to this interview that Alex Epstein did um, between Vivek, uh, can't say his last name, starts with an R, but if you look at his latest Power Hour on YouTube, you can find it. And um, th they're mainly talking about uh, Vivek's um, uh, books and his thoughts on woke capital, and specifically they refer to BlackRock. And BlackRock has um, a large amount of capital, and they have a lot of influence, and their, their head of BlackRock is this guy named Larry Fink, who um, basically writes letters to companies, to, to companies, to heads of companies, CEOs, to try to get them on board uh, and basically tell them what to do. Um, now, why does he feel like he has this power? He feels like he has this power uh, because he is a basically one of the, the largest passive money um, investment funds out there. That's what BlackRock Capital is. They basically invest in all of these companies. Um, they basically uh, get people to to invest, to basically give your your money to BlackRock, right? Or through BlackRock, you're going to invest uh, passively in the stock market, say. And BlackRock <coughs> runs, a, I guess, a good business in that they were able to attract a lot of money, right? Because they're, the, I guess, one of the biggest funds out there. Now, I don't know a lot about BlackRock, but I do know it's something that people refer to as institutional money. And when I first heard this term, I thought, what is this? What is institutional money? It sounds like it's, um, you know, maybe a hedge fund trading for its own 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 self. Uh, but but even then, you know that like people will put their money with hedge funds um, to, to trade for them. So is it the hedge funds money? Is it the business itself? Or is it other people's money? And it, when people say institutional money, they actually refer to other people's money. It's not the it's not the money manager, money manager's money. It's not the business's money. They're basically um, investing capital, investing other people's money. And the interesting thing that Vivek pointed out on Alex Epstein's interview with him is that BlackRock. Um, has been able to uh, amass so much capital or so much of other people's money and use this as a tool, as a tool to influence um, ideas about um, things that a normal shareholder in a business like an ExxonMobil or some other business, um, pro like it's sort of outside the business's scope to the extent that they're um, <laughs> opining about moral issues. And the whole concept of ESG is that now businesses are taking a moral stance on things that are outside sort of just the idea of, of how to run a business effectively, profitably, you know, within the rule of law, yes. Um, and that includes, you know, disposing of, of waste responsibly, yes. But what ESG does is it goes a step further uh, and it has all these, these, these sort of social goals 
The S in ESG, of course, stands for social. The G is for governance. And the E is for environmental. Um, so Vivek sees this, this idea that the citizens of this country should have an open debate on sort of moral issues or values of the country. But what we see is that large, um, large people with large amounts of capital, I mean, like, like a BlackRock who has a large amount of capital, uh, which actually is mostly other people's money, it turns out, but he's basically co-opting this and running the show. And he's telling in letters to other to businesses, right, um, that he invests in through BlackRock, but it's really other people's money. So, but he's sort of co-opting this and saying, well, I'm the director of BlackRock. Uh, I control this capital. I sort of control what businesses we're going to invest in because these other people that give me money are, are basically passive investors. So they've sort of relinquished their role. But what Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, has been able to do is co-opt this and have, you know, outsized influence on, on moral issues and basically dictate to these businesses what they should be doing as far as like adopting ESG policy or not. I thought that was a very astute observation. Um, I hadn't thought about it directly like that. I had thought about ESG before as a violation of fiduciary duty uh, and so I was thinking along those lines, it was securities fraud. But I was thinking um, it was only securities fraud to the extent that ESG, that, that things were being um, misrepresented or or misstatements were being made by businesses, you know, that were saying, oh, they're ESG friendly or whatever. Uh, but, um, <clears throat> but Vivek made a very good point in that uh, it is a breach of fiduciary duty because um, the shareholders ultimately own these businesses. And even though they're giving, um, they're investing through BlackRock in a passive way, the ultimate um, shareholder is actually, you know, the person that, that, um, that is invested through BlackRock into these companies. And that's my understanding, I think, because technically, you know, BlackRock is investing other people's money. And so at the end of the day, um, now, maybe there's something that says, hey, if you invest in BlackRock, you also give over all of your rights and governance and say. Now, I doubt that's what it says, but I guess I'm not sure because I don't have any money with BlackRock. <laughs> but, uh, and even if I did, I probably wouldn't have read the fine print. But, um, but he says, Vivek says, this is a huge fraud. And I believe it's not just securities fraud, but it's like it's a fraud on the public. It's like it's a way of... <laughs> of Larry Fink amassing so much power. And you you would think that the way to combat this might be, well, just accuse them of securities fraud, you know, or have the shareholders actually finally step up, right? And say, you know, the stake, there's, there's, there's something called a stakeholder that's been um, trouted out as something that businesses need to, to bow down to or to worry about. But what is that? It's, it's, it's not really the stakeholders that have any say over business. It's the shareholders. And so the shareholders could technically, you know, sue for, for fiduciary breach. I guess they'd have to sue the individual businesses that BlackRock invests in. But to the extent that they don't care that BlackRock is CEO is writing these letters to ExxonMobil telling them they need to get off fossil fuels or writing to Congress saying that, you know, 
banks need to deny credit and funding to traditional fossil fuel businesses, say, uh, to the extent that the shareholders don't care or don't know this is going on, they're never going to initiate like a lawsuit of any kind of fiduciary breach. And how, like, I don't even know how, how much of BlackRock would be even responsible for that um, because they're an active manager of these passive investments that they can, they basically take other people's money and invest them. Um, so it's kind of, it, I think it is a fraud perpetrated by BlackRock, but who would you really go after? But Vivek had a really cool solution that I hadn't thought of before, and that is um, he announced on this podcast, I guess he announced it before, but he's starting like a competitor to BlackRock. So uh, a way for people to invest passively, I suppose, um, and with somebody who uh, his, his new company, I guess, I think it's called Strive something, Strive Asset Management maybe. But uh, where his idea is to outcompete BlackRock and do a better job at actually um, giving shareholders ultimate control, I think that's the goal. But the goal is to um, compete as, you know, like a free market system, compete to get to attract capital, to invest um, in ways that don't sort of commit this, this fraud where, you know, Larry Fink substitutes himself or BlackRock substitutes itself for the, for the actual shareholders and, and sort of, um, maybe doesn't invent or doesn't write letters, right? To these, these, uh, businesses that ultimately is in, um, direct opposition to either shareholder interests, right? Cause I mean, Larry Fink, um, on one hand, he's sending these letters to like ExxonMobil telling them to get off fossil fuels. Well, that's their core business. Now, it kind of has the like perverse effect where if you limit the fossil fuel uh, production in this country, like so if you hurt ExxonMobil's business, maybe in theory it raises the price of oil. And so then it ends up helping, you know, these oil companies. But that's sort of a roundabout way. You can't say that, well, I... I'm actually helping the shareholders by actually hurting their business, but then there's a there's this derivative effect of well, it actually then increases the the price of oil, because we all know that through if Larry Fink keeps writing these letters um, to to these fossil fuel companies, traditional oil and gas businesses, that they need to go away from fossil fuels. Um, that this he has enormous power politically too, and that he's also writing letters probably to politicians telling them to enact uh, more more regulations, more taxes, like they want to pass taxes, uh, profit taxes on these companies. So so in theory, you could say, well, Larry Fink's policies have backfired. His ideas have backfired because if he wanted uh, to reduce production of fossil fuels in this country by sending letters to these uh, CEOs of these fossil fuel businesses, um, he he was successful in that and scaring capital away uh, and funding away and uh, getting these companies to actually say they want to reduce their own production, right? To reduce their own businesses. Uh, but then he, so then the oil prices go up because there's less supply, but then what happens is we get now Biden coming out saying that he wants to tax any kind of extra profit that these, um, these oil companies will make right because of increased prices because supply is low so you know 
in the end, it's not really, I don't think it's a good argument to say that he did this, well, it was really for the benefit of the ExxonMobil shareholders. No, I don't think that's going to fly. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think this idea that Vivek has is pretty cool. Um, hopefully it, it will attract a lot of capital to ultimately compete with like a BlackRock. And then it will be an alternative where a fund manager, you know, isn't operating directly in opposition to the interests of the real shareholders of these companies that they supposedly invest in. Because BlackRock, what it's been able to do is through other people's money, gain influence onto these boards of these companies by, by being, uh, by using other people's money to become a shareholder. But then BlackRock is the manager because all these people are just passive. So then BlackRock gets um, an undue, like outsized influence over these boards and to tell them what to do. And so that is the problem is that he's replacing himself as the main shareholder, right? Standing in like he's taking all of this capital and he's pretending like it's his to invest in these companies to have this huge say, but it's not really his money. And that's, that is primarily the con. Uh, that's the con number one. Uh, and number two, um, you know, because it's not his money, perhaps this is why he's hurting these companies. I couldn't understand this. And, and maybe something just clicked in my head. Like, if you're a shareholder in a company, like if so, if you just look at this from the outside, BlackRock is a shareholder of, of like, say, ExxonMobil or something. I'm just spitting this out there. I think they were they were a big shareholder in the past and they they basically uh, bullied their board like a year ago or something. I don't know if they still are, but they had influence over them and they were telling them to reduce their production. They were telling them they need to get off fossil fuels. And I was trying to wrap my brain around why, like, because a shareholder wants to, to the business to do well in theory. They want to, they want to see profits, right? They want to see dividends. They want to see increased revenues. And it didn't make sense to me. Why are you, why is a major shareholder actively hurting this business? But it makes sense to me now when you realize that this isn't block rat, block rat rocks uh, money. This is other people's money. And he is using this as a tool to gain influence on these companies uh, to make, you know, for his own personal agenda, for his own personal agenda, agenda to promote ESG or, or um, renewables or something or to, to, to help the renewable industry or the green industry and to hurt the traditional fossil fuel industry. And I, you know, you can't really go beyond that to say what his other motives are. Uh, you know, does he really want the price of oil to go up? Maybe, maybe, I mean, maybe he's got a trade there, who knows? But ultimately, why is he a share, such a large shareholder and um, bullying these companies and promoting ideas that will directly, as a, as a, as a first, uh, um, consequence, right? As a first consequence, all of this does is, is hurt these business, these um, oil and gas businesses. It doesn't help them. I mean, lowering production of, of your main business, of your main product, hurts the business. Writing letters about um, uh, to 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 the financial industry saying you shouldn't be funding these um, oil companies uh, that hurts the business. Promoting ESG uh, uh, with the SEC as something that these businesses need to, um, you know, check a box with. Like, are you 
are you renewable enough? Are you producing enough renewables? Are you um, clean enough by their standards? That ultimately will hurt, you know, companies like an Exxon Mobil um, who basically have to get their ducks in a row to to comply with these new new rules uh, just to have their company be listed, you know, on um, on the stock exchange because the SEC is a regulator and the SEC is going to allow some ESG rules, right, for listing. So the the companies that, that list here have to abide by these rules. So all of these things hurt the companies. And um, it's a fiduciary duty for a business, for executives of a business to hurt, harm, like, um, harm this business on purpose because they have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders. They have to act in the best interest of their shareholders, which we've seen come up, you know, with the whole Elon Twitter thing, right? They have to, they have to act in the best interest of their shareholders. They're legally obligated. Uh, and if they break this, this trust, then this is, they can be sued, right? This is a securities violation. It's a type of securities fraud. But is BlackRock really the owner? No, they're not. Like if, if this is a fund made up of other people's money, it's, it's other people's money, right? So other, other people really own these shares through BlackRock and they're being hurt. So BlackRock, I suppose, isn't being hurt, if, if that makes sense. Um, now, is BlackRock in violation of any fiduciary duty? Um, not to the shareholders of the companies, not to like an ExxonMobil necessarily, unless they're like on the board, but I don't think they're on the board. I think they just influence who sits on the board. So they're not like an active manager of this company. Um, so they don't have any responsibilities to the shareholders of, of a company that they, you know, write to. Um, but they do have a responsibility probably to the people that invest with them. So the people that give them money, right, passively to invest in through BlackRock, they absolutely have some duty to these people. And so the people that invest in BlackRock, I would assume, could technically sue BlackRock for fraud, for some kind of fraud, because um, the, the leader of BlackRock, Larry Fink, is actively harming, right, harming these very companies that, um, so they're, they're harming them, you know, in ways that can reduce the profits of these companies. Uh, they're harming the very companies that they use other people's money to invest in these companies. And they're doing it because other people have given them money to invest. And it's, I, I assume um, it's just through them. Now I could be wrong. Maybe these people are giving total control to BlackRock, like sort of relinquishing any kind of rights to these these underlying shares of a business that they invest in. But I don't think so. I don't. I mean, I I kind of don't think that's how it works. Um, I think that would maybe be more. Um, that just doesn't make sense to me. But why would you? Why would you? Um, and I don't know if that's how it works or not. But um, when you invest in like a fund. You're handing over your money to someone to invest it for you. And there's all kinds of rules like, you know, on, on, on these people that, that have a fiduciary duty to their customers in the financial industry. Now, I don't explicitly know what these are necessarily, 
But in broad strokes, right, they can't uh, lie to their customers. Uh, they can't commit fraud, right? And they, they probably can't actively harm the very company um, that their customers are invested in through them. Um, and they probably can't co-op to such an extent like Larry Fink does writing letters to these CEOs of companies that his clients are basically invested in to try to dictate what they do. Um, now, unless these shareholders specifically give Larry Fink the power and probably agree with his ideas about, hey, we need to tell ExxonMobil um, that they should be eliminating fossil fuels, uh, which I doubt the people that are passively investing in ExxonMobil through something like BlackRock would agree to necessarily <laughs> uh, because if they understood that this actually harms the very business they're invested in, it doesn't make sense. So I don't know what, what rules govern, you know, Larry Fink's actions to take on behalf of all these passive investors in BlackRock. Uh, but it just doesn't make sense to me that he would have this much power. And Vivek didn't really go into that necessarily, but he did, he, he was commenting on the fact that these big, big, big influencers that have amassed a large amount of capital, um, and through, through, so they're using, there's people that have a lot of money and they've made it on their own. Say like a Jeff Bezos. He's not talking about him. He's talking about like specifically Larry Fink, who basically uses other people's money that have come in through BlackRock to, to basically influence companies that they're invested in that actually specifically harms their business or takes moral positions that citizens of this country um, technically are being left out of the conversation. Uh, and I realize that this is happening through a business. So I think that any, any kind of conversation um, or any kind of influence over business should be done through shareholders. So Larry Fink is sort of snuck in the door using other people's money because he is, because BlackRock is a huge shareholder invested in something like an ExxonMobil, but it's not really his money. So he isn't the ultimate shareholder, the people that the um, BlackRock invests uh, other people's money. So that's the con. Uh, and I think that to the extent that these shareholders believe what Larry Fink believes, then technically that's technically, I think, okay. Um, but you might have some problem with other shareholders who disagree and say, hey, this is actually bad for our business. Um, but ultimately, the responsibility will fall on the executives of that business. So you have competing ideas from shareholders. You've got Larry Fink saying fossil fuels are bad. You have other people who invest in ExxonMobil who are shareholders who say it's good. And they, they squabble and they try to influence the board and executives and the executives ultimately, um, they will, will decide what to do and how to run the business. Now, if what they decide harms that business, then the shareholders actually can sue the board and remove them. And there's a breach of fiduciary duty. Now, who decides what harms a business? I mean, some people might say, well, the green movement, the ESG policy stuff will actually help them because maybe government has all these laws in place uh, that you have to follow or, or you have to, in order to get more financing, you have to go more green. So I guess it's kind of debatable, right? I don't know if you have an environment set up where green energy is, is the government standard. Um, 
a business sort of has to gain capital sometimes and has to abide by the rule of law to get to get funding and play by the rules. But at the same time, um, if their business is heavy, heavy fossil fuel and you're telling them just to reduce this, uh, that could be, you know, that could be considered a harm for the business. I guess the ultimate arbitrator of what harms a business is um, the stock price. And if that stock is being punished, right, or and if they're making less profits than they were before these these um, executives made their decision, or if they've increased their profits, because ultimately at the, at the end of the day, shareholders want increased profits. So it's probably um, going to be decided by that. Basically, um, did these executives run the run the company into the ground, or did they flourish? You know, enacting these green ESG friendly. Uh, let's get off fossil fuel policies. So um, I don't know. I, I'm just speculating here that that might be how someone evaluates whether um, an executive purposely committed securities fraud. Um, now, I think there also has to be like a, a, a purpose to harm or a direct purpose to um, enact policies that they know will harm um, the business. And, you know, would they say, well, you need to get off fossil fuels? Is that harming the business? I think it probably is. You're saying that to a, um, a fossil fuels company, even if, you know, even if Congress has these policies in place that say they want to reduce, you know, uh, fossil fuels by whatever. I mean, is, is unless that's law, right, then there's no real goal to do it. And unless there's a fine, then there's no real penalty uh, if you don't do it. So, and then you think about, well, the supply is going to go, go down if everyone's trying to get off fossil fuels. So that, that'll increase the price of oil. So that might help the company, uh, stay profitable for a time period. So who, who knows? I, I'm just speculating here, but I think it was an interesting comment that Vivek made about how institutions, um, and I've, I've made this comment before when I first started hearing the term everywhere and in the Bitcoin space, um, particularly like to use this term of institutional money. Once institutional money comes into Bitcoin, right? Oh, it's game over. I mean, it's Bitcoin's going to the moon. And we, um, I guess you could say we saw some institutional money flow in meaning like, um, I would even accuse Michael Saylor, of using other people's money to buy Bitcoin. Because what did he do? He put Bitcoin on the balance sheet of MicroStrategy. And Michael Saylor um, has, it's a public publicly traded company and he's got a lot of shares uh, and he controls this company. I think he's got like over 50% um, voting, voting power uh, that he retained. Uh, but he still has a duty to his shareholders and he's still fundamentally using other people's money because he's not the only one invested in MicroStrategy, right? It's a publicly traded company and they've also, uh, not only have they used, um, the, the collateral of the business, they've also, um, borrowed money. So they've, they've basically pledged equity or this, this business, collateral of the business, um, to, borrow money <laughs> and that's other people's money too that they have to in theory pay back at a you know at some kind of interest rate so um he's pledged uh basically shareholder uh money 
and he's also pledged even outside uh, lenders uh, money to buy Bitcoin for for the purpose of, you know, holding it on his balance sheet, hoping it's going to go up, uh, basically gambling with other people's money. And this is celebrated as a good thing. Um, I don't think the shareholders of MicroStrategy necessarily voted for this. The executives decided to do this. Now, if the shareholders were really upset, um, and if, if MicroStrategy ends up losing a bunch of money, uh, they could theory sue or, or, um, basically accuse, um, the board of, of MicroStrategy and Michael Saylor of, of securities fraud, of breaking their fiduciary duty. Um, I think that's probably the end game for, for MicroStrategy. But what is Michael Saylor, like, he also has a large amount of, of Bitcoin. Um, personally. So it could be said that he is using other people's money, institutional money, through his company to buy Bitcoin to prop up his own personal holdings of Bitcoin, uh, which is a clear, I think, violation of, of interest, right? Because he probably cares more about his personal Bitcoin stash uh, than his his company stash. I mean, the company could probably go into the toilet, right? And Michael's strategy, I mean, Sailor would care, but does he care more about his own personal Bitcoin stash or the company's? I mean, I guess you could say probably equally because his reputation is kind of on the line. But in theory, he has a conflict of interest here. He's got a personal stash of Bitcoin and he's got Bitcoin on his company's balance sheet. Um, and he's a- only able to buy as much Bitcoin as he as he has uh, through other people's money to the extent that he's able to do this with his big company. Because his personal stash, it's his money. He's buying Bitcoin with, I assume. Uh, but his, his company, that's other people's money. And we have Bitcoiners talking about how pen, public pension funds should be buying Bitcoin. We had, we had Fidelity come out, uh, like a month ago saying they were going to allow, um, uh, 401ks, right? That I guess are managed through Fidelity or, or offered through an employer through Fidelity. Uh, to buy Bitcoin. Uh, so this is people's retirement accounts. Um, and the idea is that, um, that people, that they need other people's money to buy Bitcoin. And so, um, a lot of people will come on CNBC or something like that or go on a Bitcoin podcast and they'll talk about how, well, the institutions are here and it, they make it sound, they never define what that is. And they make it sound like, oh, it's some really, um, well, when I first heard this, I thought, yeah, it's some, uh, some really smart hedge fund person, or it's some really smart VC, or it's some, um, it, it's somebody that, that's really smart or, or really smart at making money. <laughs> that's what you assume. It's like an average Joe, right? You, and, and you think, okay, well, whose money is this? I guess it's just a smart business. Uh, so you think, oh, good. Well, that's more more flow coming into Bitcoin, and it's smart money. They assume it's smart money coming in. Um, so then it just raises your perception of Bitcoin. It sort of legitimizes it in, in, in the average Joe person's eyes. Uh, and what they're really not saying or, or or talking about is defining what institutional money is, and that it's not some smart person. It's just a fund manager who manages other people's money. And it's usually like very a, a passive relationship, right? Where the, where the people are just um, invested in something 
because they, they know that they, they have their 401k and they need to put it in something. And, and usually your employer will, if it's like an employer match 401k, they'll, they'll, they'll give you very limited options, or at least that was the case when I, um, um, had options through this last employer I've had, but it was a very limited, you know, it was like different funds and it was very limited. And the only, the only stock I could actually buy outright was like the company stock, which was weird, but maybe they've changed it now. But, uh, um, they limit what you can buy. And I don't know why, like, I guess because it's sort of, um, offered through like a Vanguard or, you know, I guess now BlackRock or, you know, Fidelity, as some kind of fund that there have to be, there has to be like an active, uh, quote unquote manager. Now they're not really, you know, they're basically managing the fund and managing the stocks in it. Um, and they're supposed to be doing that for your benefit. Uh, but, um, <laughs> uh, that's questionable, right? That's, that's really questionable because they actually have to lie to you about, um, the risk of, of like treasuries and bonds. Because, uh, because if you're not suitable, they call you, if you're not suitable, then you, um, they have to basically just direct you to certain kinds of assets, um, which is odd too, but they're trying to legally protect themselves. But what's funny is that, um, Fidelity seems to be all in on Bitcoin. And this, I predict this is going to be the end of Fidelity. Like I know Fidelity is a huge company and supposedly it's, it's private. And I was talking to some Bitcoiners and they said that, yeah, the, the heir of fidelity. So, uh, I guess it got passed down to, um, you know, the granddaughter of the guy that started. Um, she loves Bitcoin. She, she was introduced to Bitcoin probably from some Bitcoin people, you know, back in the day. And they had one of the first mining operations. They had a research group and they're really Bitcoin maxis. Like they don't really like all the other assets. Um, but I guess this small group of people were able to influence this lady and maybe she came to the decision on her own. It sounds like she did. It sounds like she was just, she's in on it too. <laughs> and she just loves this asset class, but she's going to, um, I hope she's talking to her legal team because she's going to run her company into the ground. I mean, if they allow Bitcoin investments, quote unquote, in all these 401k products, and they're basically signing off on it, um, who is going to be sued at the end of the day? Because these employers like a micro strategy that are now offering, you know, Bitcoin to their employees through 401k, they're ultimately doing it, um, through a fidelity, through, through a manager of money. And so I think that these managers of money, like fidelity, they're going to be ultimately responsible and ultimately liable, uh, for allowing people to passively invest in Bitcoin, you know, in their retirement accounts. Um, that this passed the smell test, that this asset passed the smell test. And there's this really, this, this reminds me of this guy named Ted Seidel, who, who worked, I think, at the SEC, and he's now like a securities whistleblower of pension funds. And he, he wrote a book called, uh, How to Get Rich, How to Steal Legally, like how to basically steal other, pe- other people's money and do it legally. And what he's talking about here is like through the public pension system, because there's extra rules for the private public, um, p- private, sorry, private, private 401ks or private 40 or private pensions. He must have been talking about private pensions. Um, I believe basically non private company sponsored pensions 
or public pensions like a teacher's pension, right? These are government workers who get a pension when they retire and they sort of pay into it along the way. They're forced to pay into it, I believe. And this is what their retirement looks like. And the, the money is invested. And oftentimes is you get, you get people that, that vote people to, to like sort of, um, they don't manage the money <laughs> or they, they have, they do have influence. But it's like, say, say a teacher's fund or a firefighter's fund or police fund. They'll basically vote their most popular teacher uh, to the board, right? That sort of governs how this teacher's retirement public pension system um, is run. And sometimes they do get to pick investments. And, and But oftentimes it's somebody coming from like a JP Morgan, right? Or they're partnering with a Fidelity person to get them to, to buy in, buy into their fund and they'll manage it really. Right. But they have to sort of wine and dine these people. They have to get past the, the teachers that were most popular that were voted, uh, to, to run quote unquote, like approve things and, and run these, um, these retirement pension systems. And, you know, Ted Seidel, he's blown the whistle and he's gotten awarded millions of dollars for exposing lots of fraud. Uh, there was one Ohio um, public pension that invested in Beanie Babies back in the 1990s. There's other. There's been cases of other uh, public pensions that have invested in collectibles over the years. Um, but that's that's like that's an extreme. Um, but what they normally do is they'll invest. They'll invest in things that are sort of unsuitable or at least, you know, that, that benefit the money manager and fees, uh, or they'll do like, they'll do, they'll, they'll invest in private equity and they'll, they'll get a really bad price and all the details of the investment won't be disclosed because the investor or the, the, the private, uh, placement, sorry, the private, um, company will basically say, well, we can't make this public and you're a public pension. So we can't really tell you all the details uh, of this thing. And so, you know, I'm not an expert in that, but I just know there's a lot of fraud going on and it's sort of legal right now in the, in the pension industry as far as, um, well, it's not legal to commit fraud, but the way that it's set up right now, there's just an incentive for these fund managers to take advantage of people running these like retirement systems that come from the public sector like teachers that, that manage it, that have really no idea how finance works, don't come from the finance industry, don't even know what's a suitable investment. I mean, they're not even hobbyist economic, like finance people, that they don't even probably uh, have um, a stock trading account. They probably know nothing about investing. They probably don't even know what a bond is. And and yet um, these teachers that, that basically are basically voted right most popular right to go sit on the board of this public pension fund are basically making deals with people like you know pomp right there is this story pomp and and this other guy who shows up at the bitcoin conferences i don't know his name uh white hair anyways they basically sold bitcoin to a public pension fund somewhere in the east in the north uh Mid, Mideast, I guess, somewhere near Virginia or North Carolina, somewhere around there. Uh, I think it was North Carolina. And they, so they convinced, you know, them to buy into Bitcoin directly. They convinced them to get into Coinbase. Now, I wonder 
you know, and this was before Coinbase went public. So hopefully they made a bunch of money, but uh, hopefully they sold, right? Because Coinbase is way down, but maybe they did make a bunch of money. But the idea is that um, they're, they're directly investing in things like tokens. And they're also now branching out to other tokens, right? Maybe they invested in Luna, who knows? No, probably that was too fast. But you get the idea is that now these public pensions are being sold um, random tokens to invest in. And the idea is, again, back to this concept of institutional money. This is really other people's money. And there's um, some sly marketers, salespeople who are running these funds, who convince people who don't know anything, like a teacher who's on the board of the the public pension for retirement for teachers um, to, to basically convince them that like they should invest in this token or Bitcoin or some other token uh, or some other kind of private company even. Um, and, you know, there could be bribes, right? There could be, there could be some bribes of these teachers. Hey, we'll slip you some Bitcoin if you get the, the fund to invest in Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, who knows, right? This, 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 all this stuff could be under the table. I'm sure this is what goes on, you know, uh, and I don't want to accuse anybody personally of doing this, but I could just see it being really easy. You know, either you, you send the teacher on a lot of vacations or maybe, you know, that's probably, probably what they, what they do, or they just give them Bitcoin under the table or they just convince them. They just say, look, this is going to a million. Your public pension fund is, is, uh, got a lot of costs, right? Not a lot coming in. You need to keep up with inflation, um, and they just convince them to buy, to buy Bitcoin. Uh, it, it, it's just, it's left up to these money managers, these slick salespeople, uh, to, to convince like a few people. And then they've got a whole pension fund worth billions of dollars that they can buy Bitcoin with, you know, and they're not going to buy, buy Bitcoin with all of it, of course, but you know, even a small percentage of that, that's a lot of money coming into Bitcoin. And what this allows is for the, the, the whales, the people that got rich, um, you know, that bought Bitcoin a long time ago or, or bought a token a long time ago who bought it at a much lower price. This allows there to be demand, demand at these higher levels and allows them to exit because you can only exit Bitcoin, you know, at a higher price if you can find somebody willing to, to buy it. And so my problem is, is that um, this, this money that we have, this institutional money, is just sort of being mismanaged. And the only people that can really correct this, I mean, yeah, you can maybe accuse some people of fraud or misdealings, uh, but like Ted Seidel likes to say, is that the laws are set up to favor these people and favor this industry and what goes on. Um, the only way to really fight it is for, you know, basically probably the people to lose a bunch of money, the real shareholders, uh, the real people invested in these pensions, and then just for there to be outrage, um, and then there for there to be a competitor come in like what sort of Vivek wants to do with his new fund that's, that's you know, I would say wants to align shareholder interest, um, that wants to respect the shareholder interest and not just like put them into an asset uh, where they can personally benefit or uh, where, you know, there's a conflict of interest uh, or it's just a weird, like really risky, uh, not proven out yet. You know, I'd say Bitcoin's definitely not proven out yet to be in anybody's retirement fund. Um, yeah, so he wants to do offer a competitor, uh, but it's really going to take probably people losing much money um, to to notice there's a viable 
you know, alternative where the head of this, this institution, you know, other people's money, institutional money, um, the guy that runs it wants, like, actually respects the shareholders and uh, wants to um, <laughs> not just, like, fleece them or not actively harm their, um, you know, their investments, say. You know, I'm talking about here again, Larry Fink with, with BlackRock um, trying to hurt the fossil fuels industry. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so institutional money, I have to look more into this, but I'm coming away with institutional money is just other people's money. It's not some smart person, right? Some smart guy or businessman. It's not his money, right? So he, what does he care? Yeah, he'll, he'll put the pension fund into, into, into Bitcoin or, or he'll, uh, he'll write nasty letters to fossil fuel companies that harm their business because it's not really Larry Fink's money, right? It's other people's money. And CNBC can have all these, you know, quote unquote, institutional money managers on the show saying all day, yeah, we're, we're going all in on Bitcoin uh, and not, not bad nigh, because ultimately at the end of the day, he doesn't lose money, right? And Anthony Scaramucci has a fund and I don't know what kind of fund he runs, but I assume it's other people's money as well. Maybe it's a VC fund. I don't know. <laughs> but even VC funds technically are, are other people's money, right? Um, now, the, the, I, think, I think the difference is with the VC fund is the people that run the VC, it's usually their money <laughs> that they put in and then they invest it as a group. I think, I don't know if they take you know, additional money. I, I guess they do. Um, they probably do. Kind of like a hedge fund. But then what's the difference between a hedge fund and a VC? I actually don't know. But I assume that there's a common trend here. And that is they, they uh, to varying degrees, they take other people's money and they invest it in stuff and they're sort of the manager. They make the decisions. Uh, but at the, end, at the end of the day, the ultimate um, shareholder, owner, or, 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 um, or interest lies in the, the person who gave them the money to run. And they're expecting a return. Now, they, that's not guaranteed. But, you know, if, if it's profitable, then the fund managers make even more money. Uh, but I think they also make money if they lose. So for them, it's not necessarily they're investing their own money. Uh, I, want, I want CNBC to ask these, these guys like Anthony Scaramucci, uh, well, how much personally do you have invested in Bitcoin? And, and they probably, to be fair, I think they have asked this question. Uh, for some people, they had like Bill Miller on a month uh, recently. And I think they even asked him personally, well, how much of your, your net worth is in Bitcoin? And because he, he used to say he, he had all Apple and, and half of it was Apple and Bitcoin. And he, he, they made it out like it was like equal portions. And maybe that's the case. But if you look at this guy, Bill Miller's history, he like made a bunch of money, I think, in something. And then he lost a bunch of money in something. Uh, so I, I think that people that tend to do that, uh, I guess they, ha they have a different risk reward, um, uh, you know, profile. So that, 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 but they do, they do ask some people personally what they have. They ask, um, famous trader like Paul Tudor Jones, what he has. And he'll, he, he said before, oh, it's like 1% or less than 1% in Bitcoin, um, you know, so, so some people will actually tell us how much they have in Bitcoin personally. Or no, that, that wasn't personally. I think that was like the fund. 
I don't know, but, but some people will, will talk about it personally. And some people do actually, some, some, um, I'd say leaders of institutional money, Michael Saylor included. Um, I realize his, his company is, you know, it's a company, not really, not really just a, a money fund, but it's kind of been turned into one. Uh, and he's used other people's money to buy Bitcoin. So, uh, so he, he claims that he has Bitcoin personally. So a lot of these, um, institutional money managers, like a, like a sailor, sailor probably believes, um, well, I don't know sailor's goals because, you know, there's this tweet from sailor three, three, four years ago where he's like calling Bitcoin a Ponzi. So it's hard to know what this guy's thinking. Um, but he might actually believe in what he said what he says. I mean, he's got a personal stash of Bitcoin, apparently. I mean, I guess he could be lying to us, but I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt there. He's got a personal stash of Bitcoin and he says a bunch of crazy stuff about Bitcoin. And it's so unbelievable that you think this guy must be, must be um, just flat out lying, but maybe he believes his own lies. Uh, but I don't think that is a, um, a pass for committing securities fraud. And I do think he'll be hit with securities fraud with Bitcoin eventually. Um, you cannot, even if you believe that Bitcoin was going to $10 million, it's irresponsible for somebody, especially in like a Michael Saylor's position, who's a, who has fiduciary duty to his shareholders, but it's irresponsible to make these claims because there's no evidence for them. There's no, he doesn't give any supporting evidence for why Bitcoin should even reach a million. I mean, no credible re- evidence. Like, I guess you could say that, that the, the price of Bitcoin today is just as crazy as it would be at a million because you can't um, you can't value Bitcoin. You can only price it. It's just totally off of supply and demand. And a lot of Bitcoin trading is backed by, you know, is done with with um, outside uh, dollars or so not real dollars, but like stable coins that, that basically peg themselves to the dollar and that we know there's not enough dollars backing up all these stable coins they create. And yet they trade on exchanges as equivalent to dollars. And I actually think that all stable coins uh, trading of Bitcoin should be separated out from Bitcoin. It's almost like I think these exchanges should have to somehow completely separate or divorce their, their Bitcoin dollar trading versus all other Bitcoin um, crypto trading assets. Because all of these assets that are created out of thin air and they're constantly, constantly created, uh, they're all printed, like just like a stable coin, just like Bitcoin, just like Ethereum, they're all created and they all act to inflate all of each other. (laughs) Because when new Ethereum or new ETH is created, through proof of work, through through what they want to do, proof of stake in the future, uh, it's just created out of thin air. And it assumes the price of whatever ETH is currently trading on the any exchange. And so someone is basically getting this ETH for nothing, right? And with proof of stake, it's much easier to see this concept. But with proof of stake, it's it's just being rewarded. It's just being printed out of thin air, these things are intrinsically worthless. But even with Bitcoin's supposed proof of work mining, they're still being created out of thin air and they're still intrinsically worthless. It doesn't matter that the Bitcoiners are pretending 
like they're doing a bunch of work to create Bitcoin. That does not matter. It's, it's, and with Ethereum going to proof of stake and all of these tokens that we see that have some kind of staking or some kind of mechanism that creates more of them, they almost all have this, this concept of there's a process that just creates more of these tokens and rewards. This is all inflationary. And it's actually so funny that the Bitcoiners rail against inflation and the Fed printing money, they call it. Um, and yet their own system is inflationary. Bitcoin's got an inflation rate and it started off in the beginning with a very high inflationary rate. It's been dropping ever since. All, every time they have halvenings, the, redo- the reward, the new issuance is reduced by half. So in the very beginning, it had um, huge inflation. Um, and even now, I don't know what it is. You could calculate it. But um, it's, it's, it's definitely an inflationary um, token. And it only becomes, um, it never actually becomes deflationary technically because it's, um, it's, it's a, uh, um, well, because of the having nature of it, it's, it, it'll purchase an asymptote, right? But it never actually will reach it. Uh, so the inflation will become very little, you know, in like 100 years, but it'll technically still be there. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, okay, you could say it's near zero. But deflation would mean the currency is being pulled out of existence. And you could say that, well, what they like to claim is that some people will lose their keys. Okay, but that's not a predictable rate of deflation. And we never know exactly if it could be hacked one day, if they'll figure it out in 10 years. Um, so you, unless the thing is actually destroyed and no longer be spent, uh, then it's truly not deflationary. But I got onto inflation, why? Uh, oh, exchanges. So I do think that the the SEC should not approve any kind of ETF because um, it's not just that the exchanges might be manipulating the price. Um, there might be whales that, that manipulate the price. Uh, it, it's that it's that we don't even have a way to know how many real dollars are in Kraken and being traded for um, Bitcoin. You know, versus they have all these other pairs that Bitcoin trades in. And so Bitcoin is bid up by every other pair that that is traded against Bitcoin, because typically, like, think of a normal stock exchange. We just have dollars, right? You can only trade real dollars for Apple stock. You know, you can't trade Ethereum for Apple stock. And this is actually my worry of FTX trying to get involved in stock trading. And I, I think that they want to get involved in stock trading. And also, you know, be be a big player in the futures market. And I don't understand exactly how the futures market works. Some people say that's the key to understanding Bitcoin's price and where it's going. That may very well be true. I just don't know enough about it uh, to know. All I know is that it, it, they use lots of leverage in futures markets. And so I guess with more leverage, it's like you're a big whale. You can move the price more. That's sort of the logic I have, you know, limited I have limited uh, knowledge right here about futures, but that's that's the extent of which if you can move the price a lot through margin, um, 
then you can act like a whale and then maybe you can bully the price and then other exchanges will see the price of the futures trading of Bitcoin and they'll naturally want to arbitrage that. So they'll, they'll try to um, take advantage of that spread if there, there, there is one. Um, and so is that how Bitcoin's price is set? Because there's no intrinsic value in this thing. It's completely just supply, demand, mood, right? Which way is it going to go? So if you can push around price and then you can get other people to go along with your price direction because there's an arbitrage opportunity, right? Is this how SPF made his billions of dollars through arbitrage? You know, I, I also I also speculate maybe he made some some money through, you know, different currencies um, around the world, uh, maybe had a different price of Bitcoin, right, compared to others. But um, I don't know, just speculating there. But I, I do think that this is um, going to distort the stock market. If we have SBF and FTX saying, hey, look, we should be able to, uh, so this is actually what he said or what um, they said recently, a month ago. They said, we want to be able to trade stocks because our clients, um, of course, right, they want to go from worthless tokens to Apple stock. But what is this going to do? It's going to pervert and distort the stock market from this crypto contagion. This crypto stuff is leaking into the real world. When Bitcoiners buy real things, right? When they buy houses, when they buy boats, when they buy real things that people want, is they trade their worthless crypto tokens uh, for real things in the market. Now, you're really going to do a disservice to the stock market. It's already messed up, right? Because of the Fed. But that's the Fed's fault. And we can sort of place blame there. And, uh, you know, but, but if you allow these Bitcoiners like SBF and FTX to provide another source of exit liquidity for their stupid tokens, these worthless tokens in real life, they want these, these, these huge whales, right? They, 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 they don't want to just go to dollars. They want to go to Apple stock or they want to go to Tesla stock or they want to buy oil or they want to buy whatever. So what, SBF and FTX want to allow is they want to say we're going to allow the big holders of Bitcoin or ETH or Uniswap token or Luna or whatever token that was created last week, we're going to allow them to buy some Apple stock. Or we're going to allow the people who have invested in Apple just passively right hanging out in Apple for the last uh, 10 years. We're going to allow them to, to buy some ETH, right? We're going to allow them to diversify. We're going to make it easier for them to get into the, these crypto assets. But what it really is, is a way for the reverse. It's really a way for people to exit from crypto to get into real things, real stocks. And what they're going to do in perverting it is how are they going to, to do this? Well, they want to do it through stable coins. And that's why they're trying to legitimize these stablecoin products, right? They're probably going to have a harder time convincing, you know, I hope Gary Gensler at the SEC that Apple should be traded directly in ETH, right? That there should be a pair there or that Apple should be traded directly to Uni or that Apple should be traded directly to Cardano, right? Or any of these thousands of, of crypto tokens. Um, but what they might be able to convince them to do um, because they have a huge lobby bigger than the Department of Defense, this just came out, it's bigger than the Department of Defense lobbying budget, it's bigger than uh, big tech's budget. Um, the only thing it's not bigger than in this graph you can see 
is is the investment community's uh, uh, lobbying efforts. But um, but it's it's getting there, right? It's 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 pretty huge. I mean, bigger than Department of Defense. I mean, that's a big one. Um, but what they want to be able to do is they want to be able to say if we regulate stable coins enough, if we put a stamp of approval on them, then these people that have stable coins should be able to exit to regular stocks. The problem is, is that even if you found or created a stable coin that was considered legitimate, it had lots of checks, they had all the dollars in the system. My question is why? Why do you need that? Because you want FTX to be able to trade the stocks and FTX wants to be allowed, wants to allow um, the people to go from Ethereum, Bitcoin, Uniswap, Cardano, all of these cryptos will funnel into this, this stablecoin product that they consider legitimate and that's blessed by the SEC that then they can start um, having pairs with this thing. So it doesn't matter that they won't allow all these cryptocurrencies to be a pair of, of uh, Apple stock, but they'll allow one of them. And once they allow one of them in the door, then you could be an owner of Uniswap, right? And just go buy this stablecoin product and then go buy Apple. Easy peasy, right? All through the FTX app. And so you can exit crypto. You can go directly into sort of the real economy, I like to call it. Uh, and it just makes it easier for these crypto people to do this. Um, before they had to sell for real dollars. There had to be real dollars there. And then they had to like, you know, get that off the exchange, which is easy to do. It's easy enough, right? If, if there's liquidity, like if there's dollars, you can exit crypto and go to the real economy, sure. But what this allows is an easy, easier way, but it also perverts like the stock market because now we will have um, Apple being traded, right? At FTX under this blessed stablecoin pair. Um, and what we're gonna have here is arbitrage because it's easier for the crypto bro to go from Tether, unbacked Tether, to this blessed stablecoin at FTX, then buy the Apple stock. What is this going to do? It's going to create extra demand here, uh, and it's going to create an arbitrage system that FTX will benefit from because they're going to have all these orders flowing to them to try to capture this spread. And they're what are they? What is FTX all about? What is their business? They made a bunch of money arbitrage and probably manipulating cryptos crypto markets right that that's i think that's what he does best <laughs> that's like his superpower but he he justifies it because he's into effective altruism so he thinks well if i you know my goal is to make as much money as possible probably he thinks he should bend the law i'm just speculating on his philosophy but um but if he but if he does this it's okay because the sbf sbf um uh, it's all for good, like because he's going to give most of his money away, right? Well, does he consider giving money away? Uh, what does he consider lobbying? Like he, he wants to, he said he could lobby up to a billion dollars this year. Does he think that is sort of giving it away? Or is that, no, it, he thinks probably this is in the service of if I can buy up politicians, I can make more money, uh, even if I'm doing it, you know, bending some laws, right? Uh, that's okay because ultimately I'm going to give it all away because I believe in effective altruism. So that's like a stamp of approval on everything this guy does. He is, I think he's extremely, extremely dangerous because um, it is not, it's a very utilitarian idea to think that you can justify any action 
because you're going to be morally uh, correct. So I think he's highly, highly dangerous, but he's also going to be highly, highly profitable for anybody who invests in him because he's willing to do things like that, like bend the law. Um, and he's has this, uh, most people like start a business because they ultimately want to be the beneficiary of the business. He starts the business because he wants to serve other people. So he is the perfect mule. He's the perfect, I've called him the richest, youngest slave because he basically works for other people. And he, he will work, like if you've seen pictures of him, he's sleeping on a beanbag. He's worked billions of dollars. He's always working. Um, he's very, he's, he's uh, probably a very brilliant person. Um, and obviously he's made so much money, uh, but he speaks like he knows a lot of things. Like he knows even regulatory concepts and law. Um, he's fine being in front of a camera. He has this moral purpose that he's going to, to give away money to the poor and help people. Uh, so he wants to make a bunch of money, but he's not really self-interested He's self-interested because he wants to give it all away. That, to me, would be like the perfect person to invest in. Like, they're going to work for you. They want to work for other people. They're not even going to, they're going to sort of ignore their own um, health, in a way, or own desires. But if you look at him, he looks like he's having so much fun. He just looks like a cool guy to be around, like a fun guy, a smart guy that you can learn from. He likes being in front of the camera. He will talk to regulators. He's this cool guy. He's this perfect, perfect CEO, in my opinion. Um, he's relatable. He doesn't wear a business suit. He's the perfect crypto CEO. He's my favorite, in fact. <laughs> I will say he's my favorite. Um, but I don't believe in his, his effective altruism goals. And I can see that this might compromise his, um, his compass his moral compass because he has this moral compass figured out for him that if he can make as much money as possible um even if um harming harming other people right or harming other people let's say financially um but he he doesn't um he probably thinks of it as a game as a puzzle to win and i i think in a way a lot of finance is like that a lot of trading is like that uh, and that's fine. Um, but I would suspect he is willing to bend some laws. And he's also willing to lobby and change laws in his favor. Um, so he's, he's um, and maybe most people are like this too. Most business people probably would lobby to change laws in their favor as well. Uh, but he's, um, he's a little bit different, I think, because of his effective altruism beliefs. And he's a young guy. Maybe he'll change his beliefs. Um, but he's kind of, I think he's autistic. And if you are around autistic people, you know that they sort of get set in their ways. They don't really like um, changing probably uh, foundational things about themselves. So I'm just speculating here. I don't know the guy. But, um, but yeah, I think that he wants to basically take over the world in a sense. Um, and I think it's very dangerous to give him and his company um, a green light to trade stocks, especially if he wants to do that alongside crypto. Now, I'd be fine if he wants to start a company that just trades stocks or just offers stocks, but I don't want the marriage of the crypto industry and the stock market so directly. I don't want there to be a stable coin token sort of blessed, right? Um, 
that that trades on FTX with all the other cryptos, but but also this this community or this exchange has been blessed to trade stocks. Um, and I, I think that it reminds me of sort of Robinhood. I guess Robinhood has already done this, right? Because don't they have stock trading and crypto trading both on their on the platform? Is it a separate platform? I'm actually now that I'm thinking about this, haven't they already done this? Like, haven't they already gotten the approval for this? Um, how did Robinhood get approval for, because uh, they started off as a stock exchange, how did they get approval to trade crypto? Well, is it is it trading crypto directly or is it something different where uh, Robinhood is um, pretending like you own the crypto, but you really don't? Uh, you're just sort of giving your money to Robinhood to, in theory, go buy the crypto. It's probably something like that where it's not a true broker brokerage of crypto i'm guessing i don't know i don't know the laws but it seems kind of fishy to me um and and ftx wants to do something different than what robin is doing because they've um petitioned you know the government or they're trying to get license for it so obviously it's different than what robin hood necessarily wants to do or was was doing or offering um yeah i guess i have to look into that i didn't think about <coughs> that before now, Cash App, right? I think they also let you buy um, <coughs> some cryptos. So um, does Cash App, Cash App also lets you buy stocks. I think it's exactly almost like a, a Robin Hood. And you can also pay people, right, with Cash App. Or maybe it's a different product I'm thinking about. Um, probably jumbling all these different products together. There's probably the, the one where you pay people. And that I guess that's separate from the one where you buy your stocks or your your crypto maybe not maybe they're all bundled together and, and and i should go figure out like legally um why they're allowed to do that what's the structure of that and and how is sbf like what does he wants to do with ftx with stock trading and how is that different than what you know like a robin hood has already offered um anyways i got on a tangent there this has been kind of long but uh, I guess I'll I guess I'll wrap it up here, unless anybody has any questions or comments on any anything I've talked about. Um, okay, all right. Well, I will end it here.